Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we're going to meet a physicist who is part of a global group that is lobbying the United Nations to declare 2025 the International Year of Quantum Science and Technology. Then, we chat about what synchrotron X-ray images have revealed about COVID-19 lung damage. And we also talk about an exciting breakthrough in the physics of ultra-cold atoms. But first, Physics World's Margaret Harris meets an engineer and owl expert who explains how fluid dynamics plays a role in making the birds formidable nighttime predators. The hoot of an owl is a deliciously eerie part of the autumn soundscape. For experts in acoustics, though, one of the most interesting things about owls is the sound that they don't make. Here to tell us more about that lack of sound is Justin Jaworski. Justin is a mechanical engineer at Lehigh University, and as it happens, he's also an old friend from my undergraduate degree many autumns ago. Hi, Justin. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Margaret. Thank you. Nice to be here. So tell us, what is the sound that owls don't make? So the noise that owls don't make is what's called aerodynamic noise. This is a byproduct of them flying through the air. And other things that go past the air, like airplanes and wind turbine blades, also make this kind of noise. And what they're doing is suppressing this noise to below thresholds of hearing such that they can sneak up on their prey and do so by not hearing themselves as they target their prey acoustically. So what kind of structures make that silent or near-silent flight possible? So we've been trying to figure this out as engineers for at least the past 80 years. We have some good guesses, but we haven't quite got to the bottom of exactly how or why uh, they're able to suppress this noise. The three leading uh, features of owl wings we think reduce this noise are as follows. There's a, a comb that goes along the leading edge of the wing. Uh, these are like little fingers that stick out as bristles. And these uh, may have a coupled aerodynamic as well as acoustic effect. Um, and they've tried this with owls with and without the comb uh, and saw that they actually are noisier, but they also have a loss of flight control. So there's something there that may be doing both aerodynamic and acoustic benefits for the owl. There's also the trailing edge fringe. So if you look at the back of a wing, a typical wing on an aircraft, for example, a very well-defined hard edge. If you look at the back of owl feathers along the trailing edge, this nice scalped shape, which uh, you see on other birds, but there is a transition region where there's this fringe of uh, flexible uh, fibers um, uh, on, on the vein of the, of the feather that seems to be a transition between being over kind of a hard edge or uh, a, a non-porous edge, um, and it's a transition over a finite length to being out over free space. So that's another area where the turbines, say, passing over the wing can be affected by the presence of that, that area. And lastly, there's um, uh, what's kind of a velvety down surface people refer to uh, on the upper surface of the, of the wing. And this is due to something called panula, which is like little spaghetti uh, fibers that grow out of the top of the wing. Uh, and these are very, give it kind of a, vel a texture like velvet. Um, and this helps reduce noise from rubbing of feathers among each other but we have some ideas that they may be doing um, uh, other things that are beneficial acoustically. 
So how do you study this? I mean, I can see in your office you've got an owl, a stuffed owl in the background, but I'm guessing you don't sort of sit in the wind tunnel all day with sensors attached to owl wings and watch them fly. No, I'm, I'm an engineer by training, which um, I don't have live owls, but I do look at um, uh, owl feathers. I do look at the structure of the owl feathers and how they pertain to uh, what we know about uh, aerodynamic noise research and mechanisms for making noise or reducing noise. Uh, so what I've done is look at mathematical models as a way to uh, show how certain types of changes to the wing might reduce noise. So there's a, a very famous result mathematically that shows that the intensity of the sound goes like the fifth power of, or, uh, of, the, of the flight speed. This is very well documented in um, testing literature as well. So it's remarkable this prediction lines up almost exactly for, say, overhead aircraft flying. Uh, but uh, if you look at other features, we've looked at porosity and elasticity as being ways you can modify the back edge of the wing, which is where a lot of the noise is made. Um, you can weaken this to um, by by the flight speed or by the square of the flight speed, and so that's that's one area where um, math modeling has kind of shown a way to go forward to make very um, specific uh, experiments to test these theories. Because with the owl wing, it's very complicated. Uh, you have wing camber, you have different feather uh, orientations, uh, you have different ways in which it's arrayed, and so. Uh, is it one feature of the wing? Is it many features of the wing working together? Is it something very particular about that owl wing, how it was dried before you put it in the wind tunnel and made the noise the way it is? Uh, so just trying to eliminate those variables to focus on the physics so we can translate it from the owl to things that are applied. And I should say that uh, in the hunt of making things quieter, we've found lots of new ways to make things quieter technologically, but it still hasn't uh, fed back onto actually solving the owl problem completely. Because obviously this is an, in the owls, it's an evolved structure. It probably evolved to do lots of different things. It must be quite hard to tease out the, those different elements. That's right. So yeah, just by working one at a time and then looking at ways to couple them together possibly has been uh, our approach. So one way is we have to also make sure it's stealthy uh, when we put these new features or design these new features for wings. Um, but if we want to have it be airworthy, it has to also um, pass the test of having lift and drag uh, uh, characteristics that are acceptable when we put it actually into flying vehicles. So let's just talk a little bit about those those flying vehicles. Um, so you know, you said you we haven't actually solved the the problem of owl wings, but you 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 use the information you gain from studying them to um, make some changes to materials and structures on on uh, turbines or or aircraft. What sort of things you worked on? That's right. So in the early days of this, we. Uh, took a few feathers and ran our fingers over it and said, well, this feels like velvet, that one feature I mentioned earlier. And so we went to John Lewis and bought some velvet and looked under a microscope to see if the structure was the same. And if you looked at it under a microscope, you'd see for commercial velvet, you see fibers come up. You can actually see just the cross section of the fibers individually. And uh, if you look at the owl um, feather surface or the vein, they call it, uh, under a microscope, it's a completely different structure altogether. So you see are these, what are called panula, these spaghetti strands I mentioned earlier, they grow up out of the vein perpendicularly like, like blades of grass, but they have these uh, small um, hooklets, they called, just like branches on a tree. And they, they bind together to form a canopy um, and they bend over. So you have essentially a structure that's like uh, tree trunks growing and then there's a canopy of uh, interlocked fibers. And so you're essentially creating a porous surface which is suspended off of the actual 
uh, feather, uh, no, no penetration surface. And this is very useful in terms of pushing off the, the noisy layer of fluid right next to the, the wing off by a millimeter, which is a big difference when it comes time to, to suppressing noise. And so we took that and with colleagues at Virginia Tech and Florida Atlantic University, we carried out a series of experiments where um, we looked at the structure of different suspended porous layers over, uh, and, and the specialized wind tunnels that just blow a breeze over the top and look at the noise underneath this, these structures. And we did a couple of different fabrics and the one that turned out to work best was wedding veil of all things. And so uh, we discovered that if you have the fibers aligned perpendicular to the flow, that's like it's hitting a stop sign that will create more noise. But if you align the fibers with the flow, then you eliminate that noise. You can have this porous, suspended porous layer actually reduce the noise, but also not create more noise by hitting the, the flow in a certain way. And so that led to a design that we um, we put onto a wind turbine blade, stationary wind turbine blade. And uh, it was able to reduce the noise by 10 decibels in a certain bandwidth, which uh, we, we hear logarithmically. So 10 decibels for us, uh, is perceived as being half as loud. And so it was a remarkable um, achievement that, again, was from uh, owl inspiration, but it's not exactly how the owl would, would use that feature, but we adapted that in a way that actually made things better um, in a technological sense. So what do you hope to do in the future with this this line of research? Have you got other plans for it? So I just want to close the loop on the owl noise problem because it's such a fascinating problem. And for a long time in Eric's air acoustics community, it's been the spirit animal for us engineers to reduce noise, especially the low speeds. When you go to high speeds, there's a completely different set of mechanisms that, that drive those, those noise sources. For low speeds, uh, we've been, always been looking to the owl as a way to inspire new designs for noise reduction. And so to date, most of the work has been done in silos. There's been look, uh, work done in the biology community, there's been work done in the engineering community and the aerodynamic noise community. Um, but there's been little crossover or one has read the papers of the other. There's only been conversation that really has brought that together. And there's a lot of, I think, good work to be done by having that conversation. So I'm, I'm trying to be part of that now with some folks. And I think the, 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 the big results will come from looking at not just one set of owls. So most of the work now has been done on barn owls. So a very specific species of owl uh, on the larger end of, of the owl species. We're looking across different owl species, gathering more data, and be able to, um, to test noise prediction theories uh, across uh, owl, wing, uh, owl wing sizes and owl sizes will also be very important to, to close that loop as well as to inform whether um, what we think is making the owl quiet actually holds across the range. So a fascinating mystery there still to be solved. That's right. Yeah, so, so uh, these owl wing features are present along most of these species, but whether they're still active at smaller scales, we don't know. Um, we can predict whether they are or not, but whether they, that change also is accompanied by foraging changes uh, or by physical changes and how the noise is made or suppressed. Those are the kind of questions we wish to, to address. Justin Jaworski, thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you. Many physicists will recall celebrating the International Year of Light in 2015. This designation was conferred by UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. 
Today, there's a growing momentum in the physics community to have 2025 designated the International Year of Quantum Science and Technology. I'm joined down the line from the Abdus Salam International Centre for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, Italy, by Joe Nimala, who's a leading proponent for the designation. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, Joe, what exactly is a UNESCO International Year? Can you give some examples of previous years that were physics-related? Yeah, sure. So, a UNESCO International Year is a a year designated by, actually by the United Nations, uh, with endorsement by UNESCO and managed by UNESCO, uh, that really um, furthers the goals of the organization of the United Nations. Some of those goals would be the Sustainable Development Goals, for instance, of the UN Agenda 2030, um, promotion of women and girls in science, et cetera. So lots of, uh, lots of uh, uh, different things that, uh, that matter to the United Nations. Um, and so an international year is really an effort uh, and a pos- opportunity really to work uh, with many partners around the world, not just in, in nationally in, in one, one or two or a few nations, but also everywhere, including the developing countries, and also connect scientists with, uh, with people we normally don't talk to, like politicians, uh, policymakers, diplomats, uh, industrial researchers, for those of us in academia, uh, and physics, physicists and researchers in other fields, and also scientists and non-scientists, students, etc. So it's a, it's a chance to talk to the entire world. And, uh, and one thing we, we note in, in international years is that uh, uh, what the United Nations is worried about as are reflected in those sustainable development goals are societal problems that uh, like energy and uh, clean water and poverty and hunger, et cetera. These things are societal problems. There, there are technical uh, so-called solutions that are the start, but that it doesn't end with the technical solutions. Uh, you really have to... Uh, get the entire society involved, people have to actually believe it's something in their interest. And I can give you an example, uh, just look at the United States with the, or actually even here in Trieste, with people that really do not believe in, in, uh, in taking this vaccine. And so there's a, there's a real impetus to also make sure that people are, are uh, engaged and they understand uh, they have some trust in science. And that may not necessarily come from scientists. Uh, also, there are considerations of ethics and uh, whether things are harmful uh, to people, et cetera. So these, uh, these are all things uh, that uh, we really need to take into account. And it's an opportunity for us to really talk to a broader community. So that's, that's what we're doing with International Years. In the end, we, we're trying to promote and raise awareness of technologies and science uh, so people understand what's behind all these new, new technologies um, and, and really the, the idea is to better the quality of life of everybody, even in the most remote areas of the world. So there are many uh, different um, international years. Uh, every few years we have one. 2019, we had the uh, uh, international year of the periodic table of the elements. That, you might think that's a, a chemistry year, but it, it also, I guess, physics is everywhere. Uh, of course, the international year of light in 2015. Um, and then others were crystallography in 2014, astronomy in 2009, and of course, International Year of Physics uh, in 2005. And so these have all had some spin-offs, uh, some lasting uh, 
events, for instance, the International Year of Light led to an International Day of Light. And then we run various campaigns uh, each year that are, that are div- different from the year before. And this year was actually Trust in Science. Um, so anyway, those are the, the kind of uh, the years that we've had. And those, that's the general uh, focus for the year. So, so a lot of, of years actually um, uh, associated with physics. W- why is it time for an international year of quantum science and technology? Quantum mechanics, after all, has been around for at least a century or more. Well, that's that's true. It has, and in fact, we're we're celebrating a century in 2025. Uh, some people might actually think the the century would be celebrated in 2023, and maybe others would think it should have been celebrated in 2000. Uh, what we're really targeting are the, uh, the developments of Heisenberg and others to make quantum mechanics calculable. And so this has led to the advances uh, that we're seeing now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been around for 100 years, but the, the, what we're getting out of it, our understanding of the physical universe that we live in um, uh, from the Big Bang onwards, as well as, and, and in fact, everything that uh, has to do uh, once you get down to the uh, subatomic, uh, atomic and subatomic level. Uh, so we're really understanding quite a bit about materials, for instance, uh, but also all these technologies like the transistor and the laser. Those were sort of the one might say the first revolution just after the uh, of quantum mechanics, just after World War Two. But there's a second revolution coming along. Uh, and that will involve uh, lots of things, these smaller, ever smaller sensors that, that will really revolutionize medicine, uh, as well as quantum computing, which is a real game changer also for modeling complex physical systems like uh, well, like climate change. And we saw where the uh, Nobel Physics Prize went this year. So at any rate, there's so many things that are happening, but we're really looking ahead uh, to all the developments that will happen that, that again, can better the quality of our lives uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, and one thing I, I should mention is that it's also a cultural event. So that history, that hundred years, we're also going to pay attention to because that that was a, an event which uh, is really the modern science. It, it was a, our way of sharing knowledge, uh, advancing the scientific method. There are a lot of lessons to be learned and, and shared with the general public about that as well. And that's just an interesting uh, historical uh, development. So that will be part of the year as well. So, Joe, how would the International Year of Quantum Science and Technology be celebrated around the world? Well, it's uh, if it's like in past years, and it probably will be, uh, what we've generally done is, is uh, empower uh, many national nodes, uh, national committees uh, all around the world to, uh, to actually do activities uh, themselves from the grassroots on up. So these there's many different types and I'll, I'll get into that. But uh, rather than trying to centralize, we'll have an opening ceremony at UNESCO headquarters. And uh, if all goes well in January, 2025. Um, and that will be, of course, we'll end it with a closing ceremony in one of the countries that were uh, leading sponsors of the resolution through the United Nations or UNESCO. Uh, in between, there'll be many activities. Some of those will be the, the standard kind of uh, uh, scientific advanced workshops, conferences, um, and a multi-day or a single day. Uh, there'll be a number of festivals, probably TEDx-like talks, uh, activities in schools. Uh, so actually, during the year of light, there were many activities in schools around the world. And 
probably that's the most underreported uh, activity that we have because teachers are very unlikely to, to to report back if they're at a very remote school. They just do it. And that brings me to something uh, I'd like to point out is that having that uh, year designated by the United Nations uh, really empowers teachers to bring this into the classroom. They can go to their principal and say, look, you know, UNESCO, this is a UNESCO year. Can I you know, take a day? Can I get my kids involved in some international activities, competitions, et cetera? And that usually that happens quite a bit. So that's that's one of the powers, uh, one of the, uh, the advantages of having a UN designation. Uh, and that's what we like to do uh, is empower those those teachers and also young people. Uh, so there's citizen science activities, open days, uh, and uh, also we had stamp and coin collect uh, issues. So there are 24 stamps, I think, in the International Year of Light, including from the Vatican, uh, which celebrated science from Galileo on, onwards. So that was that was actually kind of surprising. Um, and all these activities, they're they're, gen- they're uh, aimed at different uh audiences. There, there'll be, of course, the professional scientists, there'll be specialists in quantum, quantum science and technology, but also others. Uh, there'll be students, there'll be preschoolers, there'll be politicians, there's a lot of high level activities, even involving royalty. Um, and so it's it's in the general public. So it's really meant to, the, the activities are broadly uh, arrayed, and it's really meant to involve everybody, because I we really think that that's the, that's the point of an international year to make sure that that message, whatever message we want to send out about the importance of science and, and uh, as a common good for all of humanity, uh, we really need to talk to everybody. So activities will reflect that. Now, you're based at the ICTP um, in Italy, and it's backing your bid, along with other organizations such as the American Physical Society and the UK and Ireland's Institute of Physics. Have you had a positive response to your campaign from physics organizations worldwide? Yes, absolutely. It's been a, it's been a wonderful uh, response. I think the, the first uh, organization we, we contacted was the Mexican Physical Society, uh, by the way, I should mention this is being led by the American Physical Society and the German Physical Society together. Um, but, you know, we soon started adding others. Uh, the Institute of Physics was maybe the second one or third one. And uh, and then we just went went crazy. And so this really started in, in August, late August. And I think most of the world was on vacation still, except for the United States. There's nobody there who ever goes on vacation. But... Uh, but at any rate, we, we made up for lost time, and we've got about 30 uh, major organizations, academies of science, and as well as physics uh, institutes and the physical societies. And so th- those are in, in, uh, in Africa, in Asia, uh, North and South America, Oceania, and Europe. So we've really covered the world so far, and we haven't stopped. We just... Uh, uh, we've been adding these these uh, organizations, and, and the response, as I said, has really been fantastic. Uh, a lot of people are behind it. I mean, quantum quantum science really is is under everything uh, that we really think about uh, these days. So it's uh, it's not hard to get these uh, organizations on board. We need to we're turning to a private sector uh, that will come a little bit later, uh, and also the chemists, et cetera. So. Uh, there's there's much much more territory to cover, but uh, we've we've really appreciated the response that we've had so far. We're really moving around the world, and that's that's the point. Before we go to UNESCO, so what I'd like to say is 
um, getting that, getting those societies and organizations on board was uh, was necessary as we went to IUPAP, that's the International Union of Pure and Applied Physics. And that was the first step on the road to UNESCO and to the UN. And so we, we got the endorsement for our proposal from the IUPAP General Assembly, uh, and that occurred at the uh, third week in October this year, so just recently. And so that, that really is an important milestone for us because IUPAP is a recognized scientific organization of physics organizations, uh, member states around the world, and they're a full member of the International Science Council, which also is connected to UNESCO. So at any rate, this was an important first step. Now uh, we have lots, of, lots more things to do. And Joe, you, you briefly touched on, on, on businesses. Uh, quantum science and technology has, has become sort of a big business, hasn't it, over the last few years with you know, companies all, all the way from Google and IBM down to, to university startups developing quantum computers, uh, quantum sensors, quantum cryptography systems. Do you, do you think that there's going to be a big uh, business uh, participation in uh, an international year of quantum science and technology? Well, we certainly hope so, and I, I really do think that uh, businesses, you, you mentioned a few, there's also IBM, um, which has a quantum initiative of its own, uh, Intel, um, and, we, and there's many, many of these startups, as you mentioned, in sensors and uh, secure communications. Uh, you know, these are the things, for instance, in the United States, it's, it's not the private sector, but the DOE has started all these centers on, on quantum science technology. So it's, uh, you know, we expect, uh, and these are connected to businesses there. And, and this is also see, being seen around the world. So uh, we really expect the private sector to be there. And that is another important uh, goal for us, as I mentioned uh, at, the, at the beginning, is really getting academics and uh, private sector researchers together and sometimes there's a language barrier and that that's just something, you know, each time we have a year, we try to do this and we, we just we work our way through it. Um, and, uh, and talking to the public, too, is, uh, is also a, a matter of, of, of changing language. And sometimes scientists are not the right people to do that. They're 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 actually professionals. They're science communicators. Uh, and, you know, often you, you should let them uh, take the lead. And, and uh, but we really encourage everybody to get involved every scientist to get involved in outreach. I think most of us had kids in, in school and that's how we got involved. But, so anyway, yeah, we're really looking forward to the industrial partners coming in. And, and so what's next? What's the next step in, um, I suppose, convincing the UN to, um, to declare 2025 uh, the International Year of Quantum Science and Technology? So the next step is actually getting getting this on the agenda of the UNESCO Executive Board. And that Executive Board is a subset of all member states, around 60 or so. Uh, and that meets a couple of times a year. A year. And so we, uh, we're aiming at the fall of uh, 2022. Uh, and to do that, we need uh, member states to uh, sponsor uh, a resolution. And uh, we can't do that. We can't uh, just show up and, and say, here, can you put this on the agenda? So we uh, that's what we're going to be doing from now until we do and uh, for the next few months is really cultivating those relationships through people we know uh, to reach uh, and also through UNESCO uh, to reach uh, member state delegations and uh, and find sponsors or find 
co-supporters of a resolution. Once it goes to the uh, executive board, they can put it on the agenda of the general conference of UNESCO. Uh, so that general conference only occurs every in odd years. And so that will be in 2023. It's also going on right now. Um, and so that's the idea is to put it on the agenda of the UNESCO general conference and the agenda of the United Nations General Assembly, both in the fall of 2023. The UNESCO comes first, uh, then the uh, UN General Assembly follows. Um, so we really want the endorsement from UNESCO and the declaration from the UN. And so that's the, that's the timeline. Uh, and if that happens, there'll be a formal proclamation in December of 2023. Uh, and that gives us all of 2024 uh, to really pr uh, program activities and, uh, and do everything we have to do to get ready for the launch in January of 2025. Wow, that's, that's really exciting. But uh, it, it also sounds like a lot of work. Um, I, I hope that goes well for you and your colleagues, Joe. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. To look at what's new on the Physics World website this week, I'm joined by my colleague Tammy Freeman. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Hamish. So this week, Physics World reported on a new medical imaging technology called hierarchical phase contrast tomography, and we think that's said HIP-CT. This new technique can image entire human organs and then zoom down to the cellular level. So, Tammy, can you explain how HIP-CT works? So, it's based on synchrotron X-ray tomography, which is a promising approach for imaging whole organs in great detail. So, synchrotron X-rays offer high brightness with deep penetration and allow rapid visualisation of internal structures with high spatial resolution. The new imaging method was developed by a European collaboration which included researchers at University College London, ESRF, which is the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility, and the University Hospital Heidelberg. And the key to this latest advance was the use of X-rays from ESRF's extremely brilliant source, which provides the brightest source of X-rays in the world. And using these beams, HIP-CT can perform non-destructive 3D scanning of an entire human organ and then zoom down to image at a level of cells. So as an example, the researchers could view blood vessels that were five micron in diameter in an intact human lung. And for comparison, a clinical CT scan only resolves blood vessels that are about a millimetre in diameter, so it can see much finer detail. So the ESRF, that's the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility, isn't it? And yeah. That's, yeah. that's located in, uh, in Grenoble, France. And uh, yeah. it, it is a fantastic um, facility. I've, I've visited it a few times. It's, uh, it's like a futuristic ring in a, in a valley in the Alps. And uh, yeah. they do some fantastic science there, that's for sure. Um, so, so what are the benefits of being able to, to take images over a wide range of length scales? If you look at biological tissues, so these are complex 3D structures that range from individual specialised cells to functional units in organs up to the entire organ itself. So being able to map 3D structures and interactions within and across these length scales, it could really help in our understanding of health and disease. 
So what sort of structures did the team image, Tammy? Well, they first imaged five intact donated human organs. So a brain, lung, heart, kidney and spleen. And they started by performing HIP-CT at 25 microns per voxel. And this provided a sort of structural overview of each organ. And you could see macroscopic features, for example, the individual lobes in the lung or the four chambers of the heart. And they then performed higher resolution scans of selected volumes within the organs. And they recorded images down to 1.3 micron per voxel. So these higher resolution images could visualise functional units within the organs and also specialised cells. So images of the heart, for example, they could see bundles of cardiac muscle fibres comprising individual cardiomyocytes. So these are the heart muscle cells they could see. So Tammy, I understand that the researchers also studied a donated lung from a patient who sadly died of COVID-19. And they were looking at how the disease affects the structure of lung tissue. What did they find? So here again, they they first performed scans at 25 microns per voxel. And then they zoomed in on volumes of interest at higher resolution. They could see damage to the lung tissue and they could see that this damage was uneven in the lungs. So they imaged one of the more effective lobes at two microns per voxel. And these scans revealed how a severe COVID infection actually remodels the smallest blood vessels in the lungs. So what happens is it causes the blood to shunt between the capillaries that supply oxygen to the body and those that feed the lung tissue itself. And this cross-linking prevents the patient's blood from being properly oxygenated, which is what I guess causes the, um, the symptoms of the disease. And the researchers point out that this process had been hypothesised before, but until now it hadn't been proven. So, I mean, this is a real sort of important application of the new technique. Yeah, that sounds like information that could be very, very useful for people who are trying to treat um, patients with COVID-19. So so what is the group working on now? Are they they doing more investigations into uh, COVID-19 damage or are they looking at other structures? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, uh, when they published the paper, they also launched an online human organ atlas. So basically, all of the images from this study and some more are publicly available in this atlas. And they hope that the atlas will eventually contain a whole library of diseases that affect organs. So this can help clinicians diagnose and treat a wide range of diseases. Um, The second thing, the, the project leader, Peter Lee from UCL, also points out that HIP-CT will continue to evolve alongside advances in synchrotron technology. Um, So there's a new ESRF beamline that's due next year, which will provide a larger, higher energy um, X-ray beam. And this should enable scanning of an entire torso at 20 microns per voxel, as well as zooming down into one micron. So, yeah, there's lots more research to come. Wow, that sounds great. And you can read more about this research on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, From Whole Organ to Cellular Resolution. Synchrotron X-ray images reveal COVID-19 lung damage. And there's a really striking image that you've used to illustrate that article as well, Tammy. What, what, what's that image of? I know talking about images on the radio is <laughs> is not <laughs> ideal, but it's it's a really nice image. Yeah, I mean, I presume you're talking about the actual image, the HIP-CT image of 
the lung of the COVID victim. Oh, no, I was thinking, sorry, I was thinking there's an image of 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 a researcher looking at something. Oh, yes. Okay. So the top image in the story, basically, I think that's um, there's two whole brains and they're the samples that are in the sample jars ready for the imaging. Oh, right. Okay. So so it really is two brains because uh, <laughs> we were talking about it at a meeting and uh, and I thought somebody was joking uh, that it was two brains. I should have read the that the, is the certainly what it looked to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you mentioned the image of, of, of the lung. Uh, th- th- that's a striking image as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's really impressive because it shows so much detail in the image. So you can see the blood vessels and they've coloured in different ones from the open vessels and the blocked vessels. And it's, it's an amazing level of detail that you can see. Fantastic. But not on the radio, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so Hamish... You're really excited this week about a breakthrough in the study of ultra-cold atoms. And this is work that's been done independently by three research groups. Yeah, this is a a trio of papers that are going to appear in the Journal of Science today, that is Thursday, when the podcast goes out. And I think the papers are fascinating because it, it... they look at a really fundamental aspect of physics. They describe the first ever evidence for an effect called Pauli blocking. And they've seen this in extremely cold samples of gases of fermionic atoms. So what's Pauli blocking? Does it have something to do with the Pauli exclusion principle? Exactly. That famous principle of quantum mechanics says that no two fermionic particles can occupy the same quantum state at the same time. Electrons are fermions, and it is this exclusion principle that dictates how atomic orbitals fill up and how electrons behave in solids. So the Pauli exclusion principle plays a crucial role in defining the properties of matter. And and this even applies at an astronomical scale, because it's the exclusion principle that stops neutron stars from collapsing under their own gravity. So so what does this have to do with an ultra-cold gas? Is it behaving like a neutron star? It is a little bit, yeah. The the atoms in this gas are so cold that they occupy only the lowest available quantum states. And they can be thought of as being packed tightly together in quantum space. And this means that if a photon of light collides with an atom, the atom cannot recoil, because to do so would mean shifting to another quantum state. And that's impossible because all nearby states are full. And so this inability to change states is called polyblocking. In a sense, these atoms are sort of prevented from doing anything, really, because uh, uh, to do so would mean changing states and all available states are full. And sort of the, the practical upshot of this is that the scattering of light in the gas is reduced because of this polyblocking. And this means that the gas becomes more transparent. And that's what three independent research groups have now seen for the first time. Sounds like it could be useful. 
Yeah, it could. Ultra-cold atomic gases have applications that range from atomic clocks to quantum network components. And being able to control the transparency of light as it passes through the gases could be a real help in designing these devices and also, you know, inventing new uh, devices based on ultra-cold atoms. And you can read more about this on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Pauli blocking is spotted in ultra-cold fermionic gases. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks for joining me, Tammy. Thanks, Hamish. And thank you to our other guests this week, Joe Niemela, Justin Jaworski, and Margaret Harris. And a special thanks to our producer, James Dacey. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out our sister program, the Physics World Stories Podcast, in which host Andrew Glester takes a focused look each month at the big stories and issues in the physics community. You can find stories on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.